I almost made it to the pulpit before he said anything. I was so close. Thank you for your encouragement tonight. John chapter 1. John chapter 1. It's been a obviously an excruciating week for the church. I had considered the possibility of uh, going in a different direction tonight because of that, but I feel like our pastor uh, did such a wonderful job addressing the hurt and the suffering uh, through Sunday morning that the best thing I could do was be to jump back into our series and uh, help us out by looking at this next doctrine of salvation uh, that we're going to talk about this evening. So John chapter 1, if you found your uh, place in God's word, we're going to begin with verses 11 through 13. 11 through 13. I will be in several scriptures tonight, um, but most of them are going to be on the screen. If you can't keep up, that's quite all right. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. Speaking of Jesus. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. One other verse that's not on the screen, 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. If you can fully enter into this and, be, and, and pay attention to what this verse is saying, it will blow your mind. Behold, What manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Let's pray. Father, we uh, would ask you to bless your word tonight and speak to us through it. We don't just want to hear the voice of a man or words on a page, but ultimately we want to hear from you. So we say with the prophet Samuel, speak for your servants are listening. In Christ's name, amen. One of my favorite um, Norman Rockwell pictures, I'm very nostalgic, so I like Norman Rockwell, among other things, uh, is one called The, the Homecoming G.I. Now it's um, uh, maybe a little hard for you to see if you're sitting in the back, but I trust that you're familiar enough with the work of art. Uh, that you'll understand why I'm using this as an illustration. The first thing uh, that you notice when when most people look at the picture is the soldier uh, in his uniform. He has a full suitcase. He's ready to be home, standing, uh, looking at the townhouse. Um, When I look at it, the first thing I'm drawn to is the soldier. Then the second thing I notice is his mother, which, which is right at the center of the picture, arms open wide. She's leaning over the porch because she's ready to embrace her son and bring him back home from the war. That's the centerpiece, the central scene. It's the main thing going on, a soldier coming home to his mom that missed him. But if that's all you saw in Rockwell's picture, while it is one of the scenes, it's not the whole work of art. It's definitely part of it. But it's not the whole picture. The second thing I notice is the the boys that are up in the trees. They could be neighborhood friends, maybe brothers. 
They're excited to climb down and hear war stories. Perhaps a brother or a handyman that's working on the roof. His father, who's just been enjoying uh, his pipe. I'm not going to address that tonight. We don't have time, but if that bothers you, that's okay. We'll, we'll, we'll move on. Um, he's very excited to see his son as well. And then uh, you can see his siblings uh, running down the, the steps. And then, of course, um, uh, the girl on the corner who seems to have her eye on him. There's more than one thing going on in the picture. And the more you see all the different things that are going on, the more you can learn to appreciate the picture. And I use this as an illustration because salvation is just like this. When God saves us, there is a lot going on. Now, there's two doctrines of salvation that most people are referring to when they talk about salvation. One is conversion. The other one is justification. We spent a night talking about justification a couple of weeks ago. And justification is perhaps the central piece. It's the soldier and and the the mother welcoming him in. I mean, it's it's the, the big center of salvation. God declaring sinners righteous. And then there's conversion, and, and when, when people typically use the phrase, uh, got saved, or I was saved, they're usually only talking about the doctrine of conversion, how they began to believe on Jesus. Now, I'm not here tonight to sell justification or conversion short, because they're part of the picture. Being saved does mean, thank God, he declares sinners righteous. And being saved also means that that we began to start repenting and believing, putting our faith in Jesus. We were converted. We were changed from death to life. But there's another part of the picture. There's another thing going on in God's canvas of salvation. And if we miss this other thing going on, we will greatly underappreciate the work of art that God creates when he saves us. And this other thing going on in the picture is this, the doctrine of adoption. The doctrine of adoption. I'll begin with the biblical definition, walk through it, and then we're going to make lots of application tonight. What is a Christian theology of adoption? We could put it simply like this. Adoption in the Bible is an act of God whereby he makes us members of his family and heirs with Jesus Christ. One more time. Adoption is an act of God whereby he makes us members of his family and heirs with Jesus Christ. It splits up nicely into three parts, so let's walk through that. Let's walk through that. First of all, adoption is an act of God. Number one, adoption, notice, is God's work. It's God's work work. And we saw this in John 1. Look, look again at verse 12. We don't make ourselves sons or children of God. If you are a child of God, that is not some sort of status you earned. That's not like reaching the silver tier or the gold tier or the platinum tier in your hotel points. You, you didn't invest in this. You didn't sweat to get here. no, John says, verse 11, Jesus was rejected by many people. 
Even his own people, they didn't receive him. They didn't welcome him. But some, verse 12, did receive him. And what happened to those people? He gives them power. In other words, he gives them the authority, the right to become sons of God. Jesus bestows on you and me, if we're trusting in him, the right to adoption. It's not something we earn or merit. This is not a reward that God gives us. I enjoyed uh, attending the reward ceremony today for our school. And rewards are good things. They're not, they're not bad. It was wonderful to watch um, these kids who had worked really hard get recognized for their hard work. But adoption is not a reward. It's not a ribbon. It's not a piece of paper we get at the end of the line when we've done a good job. Jesus is the one who gets us this. If you're adopted, if you tonight are a member of God's family, someone else worked. Someone else suffered. Someone else paid, and it was Jesus. And in his death, in his work for us, he's the one that gives us the right to become God's children. He's the one that brings us into the family. Adoption is something God does. It's not a reward, but a gift to be enjoyed. Think about it like this. God did not need sons and daughters. He, don't, he doesn't need anything because he's God. But he wants to be our father. He wants to be our father. Galatians 3.26, For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. We've talked about faith before in our series. Um, it means to rely on someone else to do something you can't do. And in this case, we are God's children by putting our faith in Jesus. And that leads to our second point. Adoption is relational. Adoption is relational. Uh, look in your Bibles at Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. I'd love to spend more time in Galatians right now, um, but we're going to limit ourselves just to verses 1 through 6. Paul says, Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a servant, though he be lord of all. But is under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the father. Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And pay attention to verse 6. Pay attention to verse 6. And because ye, ye are sons, God hath sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Verse 6, we have the whole trinity in one verse. God is our Father. The Son is the one who made God our Father and us his children. And the Spirit is sent by the Son. That's why he's the Spirit of the Son. The Holy Spirit was sent by the Son at Jesus' ascension to tell us, to remind us, to witness to our hearts that we are the sons of God. So God the Father adopts us. The Son did all the work necessary for us to be adopted. And the Holy Spirit each day lives inside of you to tell you, hey, don't forget You've been adopted. That's the trinity at work in salvation. So this is very relational. Notice how Paul contrasts servants and sons. He says that children, before they get the inheritance, they're, 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 nothing, they're really not different than a servant. They don't have any of the property. They don't have any of the money, any of the resources. They're not yet entitled to anything. But eventually, that changes. 
Eventually, they're no longer servants, but they're treated like sons. And, 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 and Paul is saying that under the old covenant, uh, this is what was going on under the law. Even though under the old covenant, people were saved by grace, there were a lot of benefits to salvation that they didn't get realized. They, they, were, they got justified. I mean, Paul even says that in this very letter that we're looking at on your lap tonight. He even says that, that no one is justified by the works of the law. So people under the old covenant were justified by grace through faith. They were made right with God. But there's a lot of benefits that they didn't enjoy. And one of those benefits is right here in verse 6. The Holy Spirit living inside of them every day telling them, God is your Father. God is your Father. That's something we enjoy in the new covenant, this new arrangement between God and his people. That's what a covenant is. It's the way God arranges the relationship between him and his people. So adoption is relational. God is our father. I want to talk more about that in our application. But then number three, this third part of our definition, adoption, this is amazing, makes us fellow heirs with Jesus. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 and verse 14. Now, in the context, Paul is talking about the life of the Spirit. And, and, and notice one of, these, one of these benefits. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear. Notice the parallel with Galatians. Servanthood, bondage, versus sonship, adoption, family. You see that? For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Very similar to what's going on in Galatians 4. But but then notice, notice this, verse 17. Look down your Bibles at verse 17. And if children, then heirs. If children, then heirs. You realize children are the heirs to what their parents leave them. Now, for some of you, that may be a lot. For, for, for some of you, that, that could be a lot of stuff. I've done funerals where there was a lot of drama. Uh, I get to do a lot of funerals in our community. I, I, I enjoy getting to minister to people in those situations. Sometimes there's a lot of drama because some people, they have a lot of inheritance. And other times there may be less drama. But we understand that children get stuff that their parents leave them. That's the principle. Well, hold on a second. Hold on a second. Get your mind off of the material uh, wealth of this world and think about this. Paul says, if we're God's children... Doesn't that also mean, Paul is saying, doesn't that also mean we're God's heirs? Don't you think if God would go to the trouble of adopting us that he wants to give us some stuff? And the answer to Paul's, this rhetorical question is, yes! God made you his child to give you stuff so you could be an heir. Look at verse 17. If children, then heirs. Heirs of God. That means we don't inherit God, but it means whatever God has what we get. What does God have in, in, the, in eternity future? What does God own in eternity future? What is God entitled to at the end of all things? Everything there is. New heavens, new earth, everything in it. 
If children, then heirs, heirs of God, and look at this, joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with them, that we may be also glorified together. I I think the end of verse 17 helps us keep our heads. Because when we, when these Roman Christians start hearing about being heirs of everything that God has, they, they may start thinking they're going to live like Caesars and never face pain or persecution. And, and, and Paul says, no, if you're joint heirs with Jesus, you're going to suffer like Jesus did. Jesus suffered before his reward, which is the souls of men. And Paul says, if you're going to be a joint heir with Christ, if you're going to be an heir of all things like Jesus is of all things, you should expect to suffer too. So, Don't get too excited. Don't go out and buy chariots and a marble throne. Hold on, Romans. Persecution is coming. And by the way, it did. But an inheritance is coming after the persecution. That's the point. If children, then heirs. What beautiful four words those are. God adopted us so that he could give us an inheritance. You know, if you grow up watching Disney movies, as I did, sometimes... Um, adoption isn't always a happy thing, right? There's a, there's a lot of uh, step-parents in Disney movies that aren't very nice, like the fairy tales. And so I think of Cinderella. Her stepmother made her as her own daughter. But that ends up being really bad news because why did she adopt her? Why did she keep her and her family with her two other daughters? Well, to use her, to exploit her. Now you can disagree which is better, the live action or the cartoon. The live action is better and I'm at the pulpit so I can say that. And some of you are wondering why I would even watch such things. I have kids. And it's also a good movie even if I didn't have kids. So adoption, in that sense, can be bad news. We, uh, sometimes in these stories, people are brought into a family to be used, to be exploited. But that's not why God adopts us. Get this in your head, Christian. God is not like... Some of us, by the way, think, think of God this way. God is not like the stepmother in Cinderella who brought you into his family so you could sweep the floors and be miserable. I say some of us think of God that way because that's how we talk about God. We're always afraid God's judging us. We're always worried about God being disappointed in us. But we're not a slave, Paul says. God did not work in your life to lead you to the spirit of bondage, but rather the spirit that says, Abba, you're my father. I belong to you. I love you. I'm known by you. God adopted us Romans 8 is teaching in order to give us an inheritance. And what do we inherit with Jesus? All things. Go to 1 Corinthians 3, or you can check it out on the screen. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 21 through 23. We inherit all things. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 21. Therefore, let no man glory in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all are yours. And ye are Christ's and Christ 
is God's. God the Father has made God the Son after his resurrection the king of everything. He is the Lord of this, the rightful Lord of this universe. He inherits everything. So whoever his co-heirs are get to inherit all things alongside of him. And Paul says, this is you. Now, now, now why in verse 21 does he say, don't let anyone glory in men? Well, in the context of 1 Corinthians, um, they were having some trouble. They were having a lot of trouble, actually. But one of the things they were having trouble with was disunity and factions. And here's what it was like. There was a group of people um, saying that they, were, uh, they belonged to the Peter camp. That's Cephas. We're Peter followers. We're loyal to Peter. He's the best. Other people said that about Apollos. We know that Apollos um, was mighty uh, in his preaching. The, the book of Acts tells us. So some people were impressed by Apollos and they wanted to identify with him. And they said, no, we think uh, we have the Apollos trading card. He's the greatest preacher of all time. We're, we're his followers. We belong to him. And other people were even doing this with Paul. We're Paul's people. We're Paul's followers. We belong to Paul. So if you were in the Paul camp, you only had people over on Sunday nights who also were really big fans of Paul. And I guess you would just talk about Paul the whole time, right? And if you're going to communion, you're not going to sit by one of the Apollos people. You get the idea. They have these factions. What's the problem? They're glorying in men. Now, Paul doesn't say just don't glory in men. He comes back to this idea in chapter 3 and actually connects it to this whole idea of being joint heirs with Christ. Now, you may think those are two totally different, separated topics, over-elevating spiritual leaders in our inheritance, but Paul puts them together. Because people that forget their adoption, people that forget what they have because they're co-heirs with Jesus, are much more liable to worship spiritual leaders and elevate them. Right? Like, people do this. Like, there's whole groups in, in Baptist churches that do this. They, they will see a preacher because he's up on a stage. And they'll have them autograph their Bible like he's Tom Cruise. And Paul is saying, if that's your mindset, if you're over-elevating these people, you don't remember that everything is yours. It is very difficult to have this clergy-lady distinction where uh, you see yourself as a member and you're a nothing and the spiritual leaders are everything. It's very difficult to see that when you remember what you have in Jesus. Because we're all on the same playing field. And by the way, if you love your spiritual leaders, you should follow them. Hebrews says, obey those that have the rule over you. You should honor them. You should be thankful for them. But you shouldn't over-elevate them. I don't want people to do that with me. I don't want people to do that with Pastor Tyler. Jesus says, if, you get, if you're exalted, you'll be abased. I don't want to be abased. So, so don't help elevate me. I don't know what it would be like for Jesus to abase me, and I don't want to find out. So help keep me humble. Help keep me like a normal person. That's what I'm asking. So, so Paul says, don't glory in men. Why? Why should the Corinthians not divide into groups based on who their favorite preacher is? Because they inherit everything with Jesus. Everyone in this church, whether you're behind a pulpit or you sit in a chair, we all get to inherit everything at the end of the age. When Jesus comes back, everything's ours. Wow. Why? Because we've been adopted into a new family. That's what Paul's saying. 
God's adoption makes us fellow heirs with Jesus. Now, of course, we'll never be the son of God, but we can be sons of God, daughters of God. Oh, and by the way, this wasn't just the father's idea. This is Jesus' plan to Hebrews, uh, Hebrews chapter 2. Verse 9, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. For it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things. You realize who we're talking about here? Pause a second. The writer of Hebrews is saying we're talking about the person. Everything exists for him and everything was made by him. And it was, became him. In other words, it was fitting for this person to do this. We're talking about the person who made all things, everything exists for him. It was fitting for him to do something. What was it fitting for him to do? In bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Jesus was so intent on bringing us to glory, on making us his children, even though it would cost his suffering. He was so intent on that, it was fitting for him to do it. Amazing. And then verse 11. Wow, this is just... I think if we believed verse 11, it would totally change our lives. Look at this verse in your Bible. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one. We're all part of the same family. Yes, that's talking about Jesus and you being in the same family. For which cause? Listen to this. Listen to this discouraged Christian. Listen to this downtrodden Christian. For which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. God knows all of the things that are evil that you've ever done. He knows all the evil things I've ever done. He knows the evil things you've done that you've forgotten about, all the evil things you're going to do. And Jesus looks at you and says, that's my brother, that's my sister. And he's not even embarrassed. How could he do that? Because you've been adopted. Because, here's the logic that the writer of Hebrews is saying, you're all of one, you're all in the same family. Jesus looks at you as his brother and sister, with God as your father. So he is not embarrassed to be your sibling. Man, this is the doctrine of adoption. So what is this doctrine then? Let's recap. Adoption is an act of God whereby he makes us members of his family and heirs with Jesus Christ. Let's apply this. Then we can sing and then we're going to go home. So why does the doctrine of adoption matter? Number one, here's why adoption matters. Adoption is a pride-killing doctrine. It's a pride-killing doctrine. Christians who suffer from this incessant arrogance of feeling better than other people have forgotten who brought them into God's family. God was not impressed by you because you're special. God was not impressed with you because of your lack of a criminal record, because of how well you can hold down a job, because of how faithful you've been to your spouse, because of how good of a parent you are. God is not impressed with you even if other people like you. God brought you into his family because of Jesus. 
We are made sons through faith in Jesus Christ. That's it. That's it. Our adoption of who we fundamentally are as Christians, children of God, it all comes from outside of us. And if we live out of this reality, we'll remember that. And there's no room for pride when we remember the doctrine of adoption. Number two, adoption motivates sincere, honest prayer. You know, my kids can tell me whatever they are thinking, and they do every day. At least the two older ones do. And sometimes they're thinking some pretty wacky stuff. And sometimes they make some pretty bold requests. Every time we go to Walmart, in fact, they make a pretty bold request. Why do they do that? They tell me what they're thinking because they see me as their dad, and rightly so. I am their dad. They can be honest with me. I want them to stay that way. When they're teenagers, man, I hope they are. When we look at God as our father, it will change how we pray or if we pray. What are the first two words of the model prayer? Our father. That's not just filler words. Jesus is saying, if you're going to talk to God, orient yourself. And by the way, the Jews did not use terminology like that at all. This isn't common parlance. Jesus isn't throwing in two filler words that everyone was already using when they pray. These two words are radical. Jesus is saying, if you want to talk to God, orient yourself toward God like this. God, you are my father. And then Jesus says, tell him what you've done. Confess your sins. Tell him what you need. Ask for forgiveness. But don't start there. Start with God. You're my father. Adoption motivates sincere, honest prayer. And some people don't talk to God. Some of you don't pray. Some of you don't remember the last time you really prayed. Unless it was at a meal and you felt like you had to pray out loud because maybe you were going out to dinner with a staff person, right? Like, I better, I better pray before we eat this. And one of the reasons that some of you don't pray is because you really don't look at God as your father. You've heard the doctrine of adoption, but it's not really sunken into your soul. When it sinks into your soul, you'll talk to God like your kids talk to you. Number three, adoption is relational, so it means God is relational. Now, some of us don't imagine God this way uh, because I think we focus so much on justification. I I remember the the first time I had a traffic uh, violation, I went through a red light because I wasn't paying attention. And uh, I kept driving, and and I was pulled over. So I, um, I went to the judge, and I asked him to uh, uh, take that off of my record. I just asked him nicely, please don't put it on my record. And he, he actually said, okay. Uh, he liked me, so it worked. Um, but you know what? After that, I never talked to him again. I have no idea who he was, don't know what his name is. He got that thing taken off of my license so I wouldn't have to pay more in insurance, and I was happy, and then I went my way. And that is how some of us imagine God. We only imagine him as judge. He is just the cosmic being that let you go free when you trusted Jesus and you've really never interacted with him again. Because when you think of salvation, all you think of is justification. He slammed the gavel. He said, I'm innocent. He said, not guilty. And now I'm good. And I'm not afraid to die. But God is not only a judge who slams the gavel and says, not guilty. 
after he slams the gavel and says, not guilty, he looks at you and he says, I know you're, you're an orphan and you have nowhere to live, so I'm going to make you my child and give you everything I have. Justification without adoption turns God into a municipal judge who just takes stuff off your record. But he is so much more than that. He takes you home. He takes you home. That's why we have to see the whole picture. That's why I long for you tonight to see the whole picture and recognize this. God is relational. Number four, adoption means that God will take care of us. God will take care of us. You don't have to turn there, but real quick, Romans 8, familiar comforting words. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did for no, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. How oh, this is amazing. God knew you were going to trust in Christ. God knew you were going to believe on Christ. And here's his destination for you uh, to be like Jesus. Oh, and to be one of Jesus' brothers or sisters. That is Paul's explanation for verse 28. Now, we all know verse 28. We're so familiar with it. God's going to work out everything for our good. And the Roman Christians are reading that thinking, man, how can I really believe that? Like, is that really true? So Paul goes on to say, here's how you can know and have assurance God will work all things for your good because he wanted to adopt you. Do you think he's going to bring you into his family and make Jesus your elder brother and then not care what happens to you? No. So Paul takes this amazing doctrine of providence in verse 28, and because providence in verse 28 is so hard for us to believe, he supports it with verse 29 and says, here's how you can know God will take care of you, because he made you one of his children. (laughs) It's incredible. Remembering adoption helps us believe that God will take care of us, that God will work all things for our good. Number five, adoption gives you a family. I love Mark chapter three. People are asking Jesus, Hey, your family's here. Don't you want to break away your mother, your brothers? They're waiting to talk to you. Why are you talking to these people? And Jesus stands up and says, behold, my mother and my brothers. You know, when you became a Christian, you not only entered into a relationship with God, you have new brothers and sisters. I have three biological brothers who I am thankful for most of the time. Some of the time. But those are not my only siblings. I have other brothers who have helped me in this Christian life that I've depended on, that have prayed for me, that have went through stuff with me. You do too if you'll avail yourself to them. Church isn't just a place to find people who are similar to you, who like to watch the same sports that you do or have the same interests that you do. Church is a place to find your family that was already there. I have sisters too, not just brothers. I don't have any biological sisters, but man, I have sisters. They're like family to me. You have a family in Jesus. Are you benefiting from it? Number six, we've got to hurry. Adoption shows the absurdity of materialism. Let me just say, why would you give away your soul and your time and your sleep to work for and earn a bunch of junk that will one day all be destroyed when your inheritance 
is so massive that the richest trust fund kid on this planet can't even hold a candle to it. Some of us have given our life to pursue stuff because we don't believe the doctrine of adoption. Number seven, adoption means that truly you are never unwanted. Now, you are unwanted by some people, perhaps. You have been unwanted, perhaps, by a parent who was there and abused you, or a parent who wasn't there at all. You've been unwanted by friends who sabotaged a relationship with you, by bosses who let you go. Now, we feel unwanted in life by other humans all the time, but the doctrine of adoption, if this is true, and Jesus says it is, It means God wants you. Do you believe that? And if you're not a Christian tonight, do you really want to say no to a God like this who wants you? And it's not that he doesn't know all the stuff underneath. Oh, he knows. He knows all the stuff. He knows all the things about you that that other people don't know. He knows all of it. He's seen everything. But he still wants you. And Christian, he wants you too. He wants you. As a son as a daughter. Adoption, this doctrine means that you are never unwanted. I hope you see the whole picture now. Do you see it? The whole thing? Not just the stuff in the center, but the whole thing. Isn't it beautiful, Christian? Let's pray, and then when we're done,